Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. We have a book to talk about tonight. It looks good. It reads good, but it looks good too. The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future by Robert P. Jones, as we know him, Robbie Jones. Uh, Our conversation tonight is about white supremacy going way back to 1493, but also uh, right now and how Robbie's traveled around the country and found really some some glimmers of hope in repair efforts happening around the country. I want to say, Robbie, I believe this book is an essential read for the reimagining of America's future. So I'm very grateful for the book and to you for writing it. Let me introduce our, our panel. Uh, Robert P. Jones is the president and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute. Van R. Newkirk II is a senior editor at The Atlantic. Uh, for years, Newkirk has covered voting rights, democracy, and environmental justice, with a focus on how race and class shape this country's and the world's fundamental structures. Jennifer Rubin, who we all love to read, writes reported opinion and columns for the Washington Post. So thank you all for joining us tonight. So Robbie, let me start with you. You've written two excellent and comprehensive books on white racism and white Christians. White Too Long and the Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity and the End of White Christian America What made you think you wanted to write, some would say, a third book around this topic of white supremacy and white Christians? And what part of the story did you feel like you still wanted to tell? So I wish I could say that, you know, I looked across the vast, uh, you know, next 10 years of my career and said, I'm going to write these three books and it's going to be this trilogy. And, you know, uh, but it was absolutely not the case at all. I have always been just try to write the next book in front of me. Um, but one in retrospect, um, I think I can see a through line, um, even if I didn't have one, you know, going in. So the end of white Christian America, which came out in 2016, was really a, a demographic book. Um, so I'm trained in sociology of religion, so I kind of use those skills to really think about the changing uh, context of the country and, and why the country seemed, the, the divides uh, between us seemed to be along lines of race and religion, what was going on. And, and there, I think the key insight was um, that during um, the tenure of our first African-American president, Barack Obama, we had also passed this major milestone in terms of demographics. And that is we had moved from being uh, a majority white Christian country at the beginning of his election uh, as president. And by the end of his second term, we were no longer uh, a country that was majority white and Christian. Uh, so just to give you the numbers, it went from 54% white and Christian in uh, 2008. By the time he comes out of office, it's 47%. And now that number is 42 uh, percent in the country. So we continue to see this decline. And that shift, I think, uh, particularly for uh, conservative white Christians who had, uh, I think, been accustomed to seeing themselves at the center of American history and at, and at the top 
of the power pyramid, right, of politics and culture, suddenly finding themselves more on the margins. I think as part of, you know, what I sometimes tongue-in-cheek call the great white Christian freakout uh, moment, I think, that we've been experiencing. And that with the symbolic presence of our first African-American president at the same time, it was like no mistaking right, that things were shifting um, in in the country. Um, And then the the second book, um, I realized that, okay, that's the demographics, but I've got to like locate this in my own story. Uh, That book was really um, probably a third memoir, uh, really trying to trace. So how does this entanglement of white supremacy and Christianity show up uh, in my own family's history, my own faith uh, journey? So I grew up uh, Southern Baptist in Jackson, Mississippi. And I have my extended family goes back five generations in middle Georgia, right? Uh, and Baptists, all we have a few Methodists thrown in for good measure, but, but mostly Baptists all the way back uh, to the early 1800s, right? And so that book was tracing that really into the 19th century and, and with my family story. And I realized that um, what was missing from that story is where did my family get the land uh, that they got in 1815 when they arrived from Virginia to Georgia? And the answer to that, of course, is from indigenous people, right? Uh, And what's going on in 1815? Well, it's Georgia forcing off the Cherokee um, out of Georgia, uh, uh, breaking treaties uh, with the the U.S. government, uh, forcibly removing uh, people on what we now know as the Trail of Tears, right, over to what is now um, Oklahoma. So my European ancestry uh, forebears uh, got free 200-acre little rectangles of land in land lotteries uh, after the uh, Cherokee had been forcibly removed. And that part of the story I knew almost nothing about. Um, So in many ways, this book, I think, is pulling that thread and just tracing it back to its roots. Um, And I I get it. um, I really uh, land the story, I think, on that part in this book, um, pulling it back from the 19th century uh, back to 1493. So, Van, you've written deeply about the structural ways that racism persists in this country. In the article in The Atlantic, you write about how thousands of black farmers in Mississippi had their land taken from them and how this is a pattern in American history. You write, the land in the Mississippi Delta was first wrestled from Native Americans by force, was then cleared, watered, made productive for intensive agriculture by the labor of enslaved Africans, who after emancipation would come to own a portion of it. Later, though, through a variety of means, legal, coercive, legal and coercive, and occasionally violent, farmland owned by black people came into the hands of white people. How do these themes in Robbie's book address that kind of reporting that you've done? So actually I met Robbie because of that article. Uh, Robbie is a a good Mississippi boy. Um, And uh, my folks are from Mississippi and I wrote that article uh, sort of as part of me trying to trace my mother's uh, familial history. And she was born in a shotgun house, the uh, daughter and granddaughter of sharecroppers in Mississippi. Uh, and so I wrote that piece basically based on uh, the family stories that I had of, of people who had had their land uh, well, land that by title or by custom had belonged to them, uh, and they had it taken from them uh, in a number of ways. So in the book, um, again, which is a, a great book, uh, you talk about this process by which the Mississippi Delta, especially uh, under uh, its 
New Dominion uh, from uh, settlers was made into farmland. It wasn't farmland originally. It was, uh, it was hunting land. It was a vast forest and swamp. And it was a massive effort at completely transforming the entire state of Mississippi, really, into a, what is still now one of the most productive agricultural uh, domains in the world. And so I think I'm trying to, in that story, and you do this work in the book as well, trace what is, how do we work backwards from the present? Uh, how do we work backwards from a system now where that same agricultural farmland now mm-hmm. in the hands of corporations for the most part, uh, which now produces so much of our soybean exports overseas. How do we work backwards uh, to talk about who actually owns that, who is responsible for that, Mm -hmm. and how do we make those layers of injustice right? It's a very difficult question. So Jennifer, you've covered the MAGA movement extensively, including how it has morphed into an ethno-religious movement during the Trump years. In what ways is the MAGA movement different from other political conservative movements that you've seen in your in covering of politics? And how does Robbie's work in this latest book contribute to your understanding of, I would say, both MAGA Republicans and white evangelicals? When I first read Robbie's first book, the light bulbs went off hmm. in my brain because I had been wrestling with this question, what are they so angry about? That the Trump supporters who are, if you overlay them with white evangelicals, you remember your Venn diagrams, it's a a very close match. So why are they so angry? Um, what, What has America done to them? What has happened in their lives that they appear so embittered, so resentful? Um, and so determined to, as they say, make America great again. And the again is the critical aspect of that Mm -hmm. because it is harkening back to this hierarchical structure that Robbie and Anne have written about. So what is it? What has freaked them out so? And I think Robbie came up with the answer. When you've gotten used to being the one with all the marbles, if anyone comes along to take even one, that's your loss. They're taking something away from me. And that sense of loss, first of all, of entitlement that is theirs to begin with, and secondly, of loss, permeates this entire political movement. It permeates their sense that America is changing, that they don't recognize America. It comes out in small, seemingly trivial ways. They don't say Merry Christmas. They say Happy Holidays. Who cares? They care because they think of themselves as the dominant religious and the dominant racial group in America. And once that came to light and that light bulb went on, it was much easier to understand their political tenor, which is 
angry, resentful, and also the things they want to do. Why do they want to suppress the votes of African-Americans and to a large extent Hispanics? Because they are the real Americans. The democracy is only legitimate if they hold power. Therefore, if they can't command electoral majorities, they're going to have to excise the electorate. And so in many ways, on many different levels, it explained a lot of the current political era that we are in. But going back to something um, that you said earlier is this issue of responsibility. I'm a Jewish American. My parents came from Europe, uh, or my parents' parents came from Europe in the early 20th century. So I've gone through life thinking, oh, None of this was my fault. I didn't benefit from any of this. And as you pull the strands apart, mm -hmm. you realize that all of us have benefited from this exploitation. Where did the largesse come from the Osage Indians whose oil monies were stolen? It went back to the federal government mm -hmm. who built stuff, who created stuff that we all benefited from. So once you begin to peel back, as you say, to go back to the origins, it's not a question of guilt. And this is the complaint that we always hear. You're trying to make us feel bad. You're trying to make us feel guilty. Um, well, first of all, as a Jewish American, I can say there's nothing wrong with guilt. It will keep you in very good stead for very many years. Guilt is good. Um, but it is also a recognition it's forcing them to recognize they just didn't get there simply on the merit of their own excellence. They had a big head start. And how we wrestle with the ways in which wealth and power were accumulated and how we move towards a more just, more fair society mm -hmm. that is closer to that ideal right. that Robbie spoke about, a multi-racial, multi-ethnic, multi-religious democracy is really the central story of America. Right. What you are dealing with is the central dilemma that we have had generation mm -hmm. after generation, whether it was the antebellum period, whether it was the Civil War, whether it was Reconstruction, the early 20th century. This has been the dilemma because we really have never been willing to come to terms with this. And that's why the history battle is so important to the Magorite. If they control history, they control this narrative. Mm -hmm. They maintain their moral innocence. They maintain their entitlement. And nothing has to change. They're not responsible for anything. They're not responsible for mass incarceration. They're not responsible for redlining, which created a huge imbalance in wealth. They're not responsible for it at all. And they can continue on their way. And that's a powerful emotion, which is why they're so defensive about it. Lest anyone hear about the Tulsa race massacre, mm -hmm. they might think, hey, what happened to all that wealth that was accumulated yeah. on Black Wall Street? Who got that? Right. And how do you return that? Or how do you make a just resolution of that? So needless to say, Robbie has had a big influence on my thinking and my writing. Um, and he asks very profound, very troubling questions. So responsibility calls for honesty. 
and this is a book about honesty. Most of you have not read this history, even you smart Georgetown students. So this history requires us for, to do honesty. And I want to keep bringing it back to where we are now. This book is not really about just 1776 or 1619 or 1493. It's about 2024. It's about where we are right now and where we're going. So another, I think, a luminary quote from your book that I want you to say a bit more about is you write this. The contemporary white Christian nationalist movement flows directly from a cultural stream that has run through this continent since the first Europeans arrived five centuries ago. The photographs of the insurrectionists storming the U.S. Capitol on January the 6th, 2021, bear an uncanny resemblance to the painting of Hernando de Soto marshalling Christian symbols to claim indigenous land for Spain on May 18th, 1541, a picture that still hangs in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol, that building. Seen in this light, Robbie says, the symbols brandished by the insurrectionists were not incidental. They were centuries-old ritual implements of the doctrine of discovery summoned to do the work they have always done. So why and how is this doctrine of discovery important to understanding the coup on January 6th? Well, I am a big believer, being an old history major myself, that you really can't understand where we are unless you figure out where we've been. And this has been so central to the development of America, to the conflicts in American life, and to the deep divides that we are experiencing now. When people say we're more divided than ever, I never quite buy that. Um, we've been divided for a very long time. Some people may not have noticed, but we've been divided. Um, for since our inception. And I think what's critical to understand is that this is not a feature, certainly of one man, of one political party, but of an entire country that is built on myths. Every country has myths. Every country has its totems. Um, but that ours raise very troubling issues for a country that prides itself on being a democracy, for a mm -hmm. country that prides itself on equal opportunity, for a country that deigns to lecture others um, in other countries about human rights. So I think once you begin to pierce this and go through this, I have the opposite reaction to, not surprising, um, to the MAGA folks, which is once I start learning about this, I can't learn enough about it. Because I will say in reading Robbie's books over the years, I thought I had a good college education. I went through public schools in California when the California schools were pretty good, graduated from UC Berkeley, graduated from law school. I'd never heard about mm -hmm. the Tulsa Race Massacre. I never heard about the Osage right. Indians. Right. Where did this come from? And you begin to realize that your own perspective, your own sense of history 
has been warped, constricted, shaded by this mindset. Mm -hmm. And I think that puts an obligation on all of us to accept and to understand our own knowledge limitations and to begin to figure out what the country is about in all its aspects. So, Robbie, most of us, when we watched January 6th, uh, you're watching too, we're all watching. Most people probably didn't think of the doctrine of discovery, and you did, as you, even watching that. So tell us why that was so contemporary, the history you're telling us here, as Jennifer's saying. Well, I think what's so remarkable about uh, that day is that there were all these visible symbols and yeah. totems. I mean, they were yeah. out there, right, yeah. on proud display. And so you got to see exactly what the amalgamation was, right? So even if you only stay with the flags, forget the T-shirts and the sweatshirts and the patches, right, and uh, all of those other things, Bibles. Uh, but if you just stay with the flags, right, you kind of get the picture, right? There were Trump flags, there were Confederate flags, and there were Christian flags, yep. right? And that was basically the mix uh, on that day. And so, you know, if you know this history— and you kind of think, oh, well, like one of the key claims, right, uh, from the beginning of the country is this idea, again, of America as a promised land exclusively for white European Christians. Like that's the that's the vision. And you remember the KKK, right? People, we think of the KKK as a kind of racist and it was just about race. But who else was the KKK not so happy with? Catholics and Jews, Right. Why is that? Because they were not white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Christians, right? Even the KKK is an ethno-religious movement. It's always been that, uh, that vision um, in the country. And we saw that kind of expression. And it's a claim, right? It's, it's literally staking the claim that, that um, we've all seen those photos, you know, whether it's Columbus or DeSoto, um, planting the flag, right, um, on the ground. And what's usually there, then maybe not always noticed, are two things, military implements, weapons of war, uh, and symbols of Christianity, um, right? So the flag, the symbol of the state, uh, usually there's a, that, that painting of Hernando de Soto is remarkable. You should look it up. It's like an eight by 12 painting, uh, eight by 12 feet painting in the U.S. Capitol, uh, Rotunda, and it's, it's uh, de Soto, and he is riding in on his magnificent white horse. Uh, Native Americans are cowering um, in his presence. Um, there are cannon and all kinds of weaponry up at the front and, and, and the flag in the middle. And then on the bottom right-hand side of the, of the, the painting um, is this giant crucifix being raised, right? And so my reading uh, from a religious statement from, uh, uh, from the scroll, this basically, that, that was actually a, not just a kind of, they were, I, I sometimes thought maybe those are just, maybe they're having a little worship service, right? Uh, thanking God for the safe voyage or something like that. But it was a legal and religious claim. Like it was a ritual of domination, right, that they were enacting. And we've got this still hanging as a symbol, as one of only four big paintings in the capital of the Rotunda today, right, as, as part of what it means to be an American. So, I mean, these claims are so deep. And, and this, um, I'll give you one more um, uh, quick thing. Uh, I was uh, stunned uh, to, to learn that when we asked at, at PRI, and our PRI team is here on the second row, thank you all for coming. Um, uh, but uh, when, when we asked a survey question about whether or not, I wanted to see, like, how, how is this Doctrine of Discovery, 500 years old, still with us uh, today? And how many Americans still believe this idea? So we asked a question that just said, do you agree or disagree uh, uh, that the United States was intended by God 
as a promised land for European Christians. So they could set an example for the rest of the world. 30% of Americans agree uh, with that statement, right? So that's, on the one hand, you can think for democracy, that's some good news that two-thirds of Americans reject that premise, all right? Um, but on the other hand, if you look at the breaks, so who, where do you have majorities uh, who believe that statement? It's two main groups. Uh, one of them are white evangelical Protestants, kind of my people uh, from, from the South, Baptists and the like. Um, a majority of them affirm that statement, and a majority of self-identified Republicans uh, affirm that statement, right? And so, and, and again, today the Republican Party is about 70% white and Christian, right? In a country that's only 42% white and Christian, right? So you can just see these lines of party, race, religion aligning, right, um, around this very, very old um, idea that is still very much with us today. To put a point on that, mm-hmm. I think, so you, you, the future that the insurrectionists envisioned, right, it was one in which they were the patriots. They are the patriots. And they believe themselves to be acting in uh, the footsteps and the legacy of the patriots. And I think we've had a tendency to say, that's not true. This is not America. They are acting outside of the domain of, uh, of, of what is right and true and traditional. And I think it is important to go and actually question that notion, which you've been doing. If you look back uh, at the Confederacy, right? The Confederates believed that they were acting as the patriots would have acted. And it's been a common uh, sort of refrain from the victor side that uh, they weren't, that they were uh, aberrations, they were acting outside the norm. But you look at who the Confederates were, you look at who Robert E. Lee was, he was the actual grandson of a patriot. The, the planter class in Virginia, wore, they were the people who inherited both the land and the enslaved folks of the patriots. And so I think once you dig in, and once you start with this doctrine of discovery, when you start with the idea that you have a chosen people, it becomes a little bit more complicated as to who, well, who we are and who we are. And how, how that's still with us, as you point out, is a poll, uh, alarming poll that came out from Pew. Survey found that the majorities of white evangelicals, white Catholics, and white mainline Protestants, notice all white, said people seeing discrimination where it does not exist in this country is a bigger issue than seeing racism where it does exist. Bigger problem for them, a majority of white Christians, uh, crying wolf over allegedly false racism is a bigger problem than crying foul over actual racism. Well, it's because we did it. We we beat racism. And many, and, and African-Americans, 90% disagree. So let's bring it right now to yeah, Jennifer, please. Um, this is a constant theme. Um, it is, and it seems to be in conflict, and it is. On one hand, they claim white superiority. On the other hand, they are perpetual victims. Um, and they are victims because people are trying to take what is theirs whether it's power, whether it's money, uh, whether it's um, the right to shape the country in their own vision. And it's important to understand that both for Christianity and for America, this idea is not peripheral. It is central. 
And the church has still not apologized for the doctrine of discovery. Robbie, to his credit, traces all the kind of mealy mouth um, half apologies and, you know, we're sorry if you were offended. And, um, you know, this really was a bad idea that some people, as if these were rogue, you know, priests and uh, bishops, were up to. This was the Pope. This was central to who they were. And likewise, this is central to who America is. It is so easy to marginalize what we don't want to take responsibility for and to say, well, the country is basically good. Christianity is basically good. Yes, they made mistakes. Certain people made mistakes or even worse. Mistakes were made um, and passive. And that's this battle that we have going on. And it is a battle for honesty and recognition about who we are and what our obligations to one another are. Um, and people talk a good game about perfecting democracy. But if you don't wrestle with these issues, you're never going to get there. This is not simply a poverty issue. That too late in the in the food chain. It's not simply an issue of rural America versus urban America. Again, that's the consequence of this central divide. So I think until we do a better job of educating ourselves and understanding ourselves, some of the magnificent incidents that Robbie traces, I hope we do get to them because it's not all depressing, in which communities come together, white and black, Native American and European American, to address, resolve, to try to make um, a resolution that is just, is what it's all about. We do this for a purpose, to make this a more just society, to make this a more equal society, to live up to our obligations. And we keep trying to do that without wrestling with these central issues. We're going to fail. Yeah. Can I just pick up one, one quick point that, that Dan made about, about patriots? Because I think one of the w ways that like reading this history and keeping in mind both the history of African-Americans and the, and the history of indigenous people in this country is that even if you sort of take the, the, the patriots, right, the first generation patriots, well, what are they complaining about in the Declaration of Independence, right? Uh, so it's certainly taxation without representation that we still see driving around on license plates here in D.C., uh, but it is also... What were they taxing? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, there's that. And then, but then there's also in, the, in, in that document, right, they're complaining that, that the British crown is uh, fomenting uh, slave insurrections uh, against the colonists, uh, and uh, they're complaining about uh, the merciless savages, right? Uh, Native Americans, that's, that's the words in the document, merciless savages, right? And, and the fact that the British crown will not let them cross uh, over uh, in, past the Allegheny Appalachian Mountains and colonize further into the continent because the crown was reserving those lands uh, for itself, right? So they were sort of wanting to do further colonization, push Native Americans further out, and part of, that was part of the complaint, right? From, so this kind of settler colonialist mindset, again, this land is our land, right, uh, is, is there even alongside these very high and admirable democratic principles. It's all mixed up together. So, Van, your point, who are the patriots? You could all say, who are the Christians? Hmm. Because in the middle of slavery, these hush harbors arose from enslaved people 
to worship away from the white people. And out of that come the black churches. So who are the Christians becomes the issue. Is, is religion driving this or is race driving religion? Uh, so in the phrase white Christian, what word shapes the other here? White or Christian? And so there's a theological question here, a deeply one, uh, from black history, which uh, raises who are the real Christians as well as who are the real patriots. Hmm, that's been, that's always been a, a really important question. It's sort of a chicken and egg problem, right? Mm -hmm. Is does the whiteness or the Christianity come first? And I think it's more productive to think about them as self-reinforcing and creating mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. systems. So I don't think we have a common conception of whiteness uh, that's the same as we do without the church. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we have a sort of yeah. Western yeah. ideal of not just the church, but the sort of sinews of prosperity gospel yep. uh, right. in the right. same way if we don't have whiteness. So I view the black liberation theology tradition mm -hmm. as a similarly intertwined reaction to both of those. So you see stealing away in those fields, you have not just the creation of black churches, but a distinct theology right. that right. takes the idea so. of biblical freedom and salvation literally on earth. Right. And that becomes the underpinnings of the entire civil rights movement. So and I don't just mean 20 years in the mid 20th century. Mm -hmm. I mean, the long the civil thing. rights movement that mm -hmm. began with the first enslaved insurrections right. and continues today. So study that point. <laughs> What's going on with theology here as well as politics? So let's get to the point about in the field. You went out to the field in three places and you know, listening to our conversation, many could feel we are so entrenched our American life uh, in such white supremacy and expectation that there really isn't much hope. It can't be purged or repented from or just feeling guilty, which in Judaism, Islam, Christianity, repentance doesn't mean feeling guilty. It means turning around and going in a whole different direction. But believing that's possible is always the struggle that we all have. So tell us about how you went out and saw people doing some things and how you found some glimmers of hope out there in the field. Sure, yeah, well, in the book, I, I go to three different places. I wanted a, some different lenses uh, on it. So I go uh, to the Mississippi Delta uh, uh, in my home state of Mississippi uh, around people who are trying to commemorate and memorialize the story of Emmett Till uh, there. Uh, in uh, Oklahoma, uh, uh, really interviewed for people who were instrumental in telling the story of the Tulsa Race Massacre and its 100th um, uh, anniversary in, in 2021. Uh, and then in a much lesser known story up in Duluth, Minnesota, because I didn't want to just pick on the South um, or, uh, you know, Oklahoma being one of the reddest states, uh, uh, politically speaking, every county uh, voting for Trump uh, in, the, in the last election. Uh, but but go to Minnesota. Right. A good northern state um, uh, and a very white uh, state uh, in the country. And in, and in Duluth, uh, there were people working to tell the truth about uh, a horrific lynching that happened in 1920. 
uh, in Duluth where three African-American circus workers who were in town for a single day uh, were falsely accused of sexually assaulting a, a white woman um, and were jailed uh, and then lynched by a crowd of 10,000 people uh, in Minnesota Nice, Duluth. Um, uh, they had, at the time, that was one-tenth of the population of the town uh, that turned out uh, for, for, this, uh, for, for this lynching. And, and then people just squashed it, right? It was not told. And what's notable, I think, to me in terms of like this moment we're in is that all of these uh, stories really are only, uh, there's only been a turning point in the last 30 years, right? It's, it's, it's still in our history, very recent that these stories are being told. If you had gone to Mississippi Delta in 2000 and driven through Tallahatchie County, uh, there was virtually nothing there telling the story of Emmett Till. No markers, no historical signs, uh, no memorials, um, anything like that. And a group of local citizens, uh, you know, came together and said, you know, we've got to tell the truth. If we want a better future for our kids, We've got to tell a better story about what happened. And it was a group of, it's a very rural, very poor uh, county. And it was a group of descendants of enslavers and descendants of the enslaved, right, coming together. Uh, and these are, like, again, the, the county seat town has like 600 people in it. Like, this is not a big place, right? These people know each other and they know each other's family's histories, right? And yet they came together and said, we're going to do something different. And it took them a couple of decades, Right of, of doing this work and building it up, uh, uh, but in that case, uh, it has culminated. And just uh, this is not in the book because it just happened three weeks ago uh, that President Biden uh, and actually ran in the van at the reception uh, at the sure Department did. of Interior. Um, President Biden declared a new national monument um, uh, dedicated to Emmett Till and his mother Mamie Till Mobley that'll be jointly located in Chicago and in Tallahatchie County. But without these people coming together with no money, no resources, and just saying we are going to tell the truth. Um, about this because we can't uh, get to a better future without doing that. Um, that happened. Very similar thing happened in, in Duluth. Um, uh, one just remarkable detail there um, that uh, this, this, uh, it was, a, it was a, a Latina woman, a white woman, and an African-American man that just got together and said, we're going to tell the story. We've, we've squashed it. We've never told the story. Um, and they did this in 2003. It was one of the first communities ever to put up a memorial to the victims of lynching. Uh, in, in Duluth. It's a beautiful plaza, still there t today. And it was there. What a difference this makes. Um, I'll, I'll just end with this story, um, is that that plaza was built in 2003. Um, that means it was there during the eruption of the Black Lives Matter uh, mm -hmm. protests, right? After George Floyd is, is, is killed just down the road in Minneapolis. Um, so there's this eruption there. Uh, but in Duluth, there's a place to go, right? Right for truth-telling. Like, people know this is where Martin Luther King marches start off from. And so people just instinctively, peacefully came to this place uh, together, and they were talking and marching. And, and the police chief, um, who uh, was related to the woman who falsely accused these men uh, in 1920 uh, of sexually assaulting her, and he only found out that story because of the memorialization effort. He didn't even know this story about his family, but he's the police chief during the Black Lives Matter protests, but because he's been through this process, he, he instructs the police to police differently, right? To not over-police, uh, uh, to be aggressive, but to kind of give people space, keep them safe, but to give them space. So just in that little story, right, there's a, a different way that things flow and happen uh, in that community because of really the actions of three people initially kind of getting together and telling the story. Robbie, one of the questions I had reading the book was whether you can size this up or whether it has to be done in a local community where people know each other, where 
press and the political parties don't put a bright light on it. Did you form any conclusions about that? Um, well, you know, you and I talked about this a little bit in uh, uh, our interview that we did at the Washington Post. Um, but I, it, what at least from the the ones that I studied, what it seemed to be, what the formula seemed to be, local citizens coming together and saying, we're just going to tell the truth, right, about this, because we're convinced uh, that we can't build a foundation on anything, on lies, right, that we have to be honest about our, our, our troubled past. Uh, but then it, there are roles, though, for local government to play, like Jerome Little in Tallahatchie County, um, one of the first African-American men elected, by the way, after the Voting Rights Act, and when uh, uh, African-Americans were finally registered in mass, uh, in, in Tallahatchie County, um, was a, a key leader. And, and to kind of tell you the amnesia here, so he grew up in this community, in the Delta. When does he find out about Emmett Till? When he's in the military in France, right? And he learns the story. He's like, wait, that's, that's right down the road from where I, I grew up. And he comes back and says, okay, we are going to tell this story, right? And, and then he becomes county commissioner, right? So then the county ends up doing some, uh, some things. Uh, the, the Mississippi uh, has this uh, actually quite wonderful uh, civil rights museum in Jackson, and it now has a big uh, display on Emmett Till, which it would not have had, really, if it had not been for the efforts. So that's state money, right? County money, state money. And then I've just told the story of uh, the new National Park Service. It's federal. So I think there's a, it's a kind of partnership, right? But what tends to get it off the ground, at least in the models I've seen, are local citizens. And, and these actually weren't activists. These were just like people who decided like, Nobody else is doing this and like, we need to do it and decided to kind of get together and, and try. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of a nation. Thank you all.